Hey, everybody. This is Lisa Sharon Harper from Freedom Road Podcast. And I am so excited for the next two episodes because, hey, I started a new podcast with three really awesome friends, the Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III, Reverend Dr. Jackie Lewis, and Reverend Michael Ray Matthews. And together, the four of us make The Four. (laughs) Is that not cool or what? You can find out more about us at thefour.black. So we get to talk about really deep things and also laugh a whole lot. And I just wanted you to hear it. So that's why for the next two months, we're going to be featuring two episodes from The Four. The first one you're going to hear is Kristen Dumay. She is an historian and done amazing work, particularly digging into how did we get to this moment, this January 6th moment within evangelical America. So you'll get more of an introduction to her in the actual podcast. And then in August, we're going to be dropping into the feed, the episode with Ruby Sales, who is like an auntie, literally actually kind of like an auntie to me, not by blood, but by sweat, right? So she and my mom were both in the movement together. And she came and spoke to us at the four and you will not want to miss what she has to say. Okay. So everybody sit back, hold on to your seats because Kristen Dumay is about to give us a ride. God bless. We gon' have a time. Good time on good time. We gon' have a time. Good time on good time. We gon' have a time. When we all, all get together. We gon' have Everybody needs a space to be themselves. The Four. Everybody needs a space where they're centered. The Four. Everybody needs a space that speaks about who they are. Stay tuned for The Four. A fearsome faith foursome. Talking Black life, love, joy, and power. That's deep. I'm Lisa Sharon Harper. I'm Michael Ray Matthews. I'm Jackie Lewis. I am Otis Moss III. We're glad you're here to join in these conversations with us. We're here at the four. All right. So what's the best fun advice you've ever gotten from an elder? Talk to me, people. Talk to me. (laughs) In my best New York accent. I, I don't think mine is fit for for podcast consumption. I'll just I'll just say her name is Ola Maymore, and she always had some crazy Southern expression to give you to make you laugh till you wanted to go to the bathroom on yourself, and then you just were like, "Oh my God, she didn't really say that." So I'm just going to say the word "possible" because somebody who's listening has heard this expression. I want to hear it now. Wash. Like, it's going to say "wash possible." So she would say. Wash, wash possible. possible. Okay. Some, some woman someplace knows what that's about. <laughs> knows what wash, wash possible, possible. Yeah. is I'll about. Tell you, okay. I'll tell you offline. <laughs> All right, I can't wait to hear it. It's I can't wait. Funny. All right. Maybe we can put it in show notes. <laughs> yeah. Show notes. <laughs> I think we can. How about others? So, uh, well, I, the person is still living, so I, I want to give the exact. But when we got married, our priest and friend, Father Nelson Pender gave myself and Monica advice during our premarital counseling. Go on. And we walked out and we fell out and telling us what exactly we should do and how we should do it. (laughs) In the boudoir, my friend? Is that what you mean? Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, we're like, 
And he's like, that's... I've been married for <laughs> That's funny. That is fun advice. That, that is, is really good. Advice. That's the definition of fun advice right that's there. Right. Yes, that's yes. Really so... Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so now I'm going to tell you this. In this one particular story, she was talking about being a little a girl in camp. And discovering, like, one of their friends had an offensive odor. Like, one of their friends had an offensive odor. And I'm going to go underarm orders, what she seemed to be indicating. And she said, girl, you need to wash. And the girl said, I washed as far as possible. And Ola May said, well, next time, perhaps you should wash possible, too. <laughs> I just think that. <laughs> Oh, have mercy. <laughs> oh, my God. Wash possible. Wash possible. <laughs> All right, Michael Ray. What's up? Man, I have one that's too vulgar. I mean, the, the real one is too vulgar. <laughs> the actual real one. Wow. Our elders vulgar. are so yeah, that's what makes oh, come on and That's what makes they it fun. Play. That's what yeah. makes it fun. Like the first time one of my mentors <laughs> heard me use some profanity. She cried. She was so oh. relieved. <laughs> <laughs> cried. She was oh so relieved. Uh, oh, oh so my goodness. It's it hilarious. Thank you, Michael Ray. So I won't even say who it was. Just one of my elders once said to me, because I had been in that white evangelical world for so long and taught to, taught to bend myself, twist myself into all kind of contortions in order to be to belong and one of those was to say a caveat before everything to say well i don't really know this but this is what i think well i'm not really an expert on this but here's what i think in other words don't really listen to me and my mom it was my mom it was my mom so my mom finally said to me lisa why are you using caveats before every single thing that you say just say it i just want to know what you think just tell us what you think and I was like, well, mom, but then people, she said, you know what you need to learn how to do? You need to learn how to say F them. <laughs> did she say the say, word? I see mom about she did it. The whole thing. Get okay. on it. The whole yep. word. Just say so, F them. And okay. I was like, you know what? That's power. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. Now, and I, elders know how to cuss. You know what I mean? They, they do. do. They don't even have with a, with authority. Like, wow. They cuss with such rhythm at the same time, <laughs> you know. Younger people, they, they don't know how to use the profanity. They, I mean, they cuss like prior, you know. <laughs> they do. Yes, yes. So, I, so now I feel I must go ahead and just <laughs> reveal a bit of what that fun advice okay, was. Okay. Which was basically the same advice. Oh, wow. But it wasn't F them. It was okay. F, a, a broader expression of M, <laughs> right? F-T-M-F. Oh, that. I know yes. that one. Yes, F-T-M-F yes. F-T-M-F. And as a father, as a father, so was, now, was that it, as an adjective, a noun, or both? That's what I'm curious about because you know, you know MF can be an adjective, a noun, or it can be a preposition depending upon how it is stated. So my father said that, and so I knew that the day would come, especially if you're raising a young black person, a young black man in a city where we're only 3% of the population. The day would come when he would come home and say something. And I was like, okay, this is the moment. And my father, who had already departed, I was like, hey, dad, I'm going to pass the wisdom down to the next generation. <laughs> you know what, son? Sometimes you just got to say F-T-M-F and keep stepping. 
<laughs> I, I got that wisdom from an elder who's a pastor. <laughs> wow, <laughs> wow. So I was like, it's okay to say his name. I'll say my friend Michael, and I will say all the last names and stuff. <laughs> but I was graduating from seminary, and they were trying to. I had left my corporate world and my big money to go to seminary, and was graduating and negotiating a salary. And I was sitting in Michael's office, going, "I don't understand. What do they think I'm supposed to do? How am I supposed to eat?" And he was like, "Tell those." MFs, F those MFs. And I was like, oh, this? wait a minute, what? We can curse? <laughs> I was so excited. <laughs> there is no reason. I'm the cousin pastor. I will cuss if I have to. Yeah, you can like, cuss. She can will cuss. Okay. A variety of ways. And uh, several, several different words could come. Like, but is that exclamation was... point? Is that a comma? Is that... <laughs> <laughs> it's a semicolon when Jackie uses it. And I might. Whisper it in a sermon, or at least mouth it, mind it. That's right. right. Oh, yeah. I mean, anyway, so this, I was like, wait a minute, because I didn't curse. Like, I really wasn't a curser. So I was like, huh? we can curse? And I have embraced. You've embraced it. Ever you said. curse, you just can do it. It's fine. God is going to still be okay. Yeah. Even, and sometimes you can even cuss. But yeah, I call it cursing. Do you want to, is there a difference between cussing and cursing? Cursing is cursing. Cussing. Now, cussing is different. That 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 comes down to your uh, cussing is down in, in your belly. Yes. Cussing, he has got you know, that's a different, and that can be utilized again in a variety of ways <laughs> when you are speaking. Uh, it may be not offensive, but I'm just saying it. Like if you go to New Orleans, people will use MF as a, be a noun chapter. and an adjective. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so did you hear how that man played? He played it like a blankety blank. That's right. <laughs> and depending on how he says it, you either are, it's a compliment or it's an insult. That's right. <laughs> oh my God. True. Cussing. Oh, really? I love you guys. Oh, my God. <laughs> Kristen, welcome to the four. Thank welcome you so much. I we am are, thrilled to be here. We are really excited to have you here. And honestly, I feel like we need what you got. This is a reconnaissance journey here today. We're going to the other side. We're going to take a look at what's going on the other side of the wall. And that's why you're in the room. <laughs> I will do my best. Give us a peek at what's going on the other side of the wall. So Kristen Kobus dume is a professor of history and gender studies at Calvin University in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Her research focuses on the intersection of gender, religion, and politics. And we invited Kristen to the circle today to do a little reconnaissance. As an historian, Kristen specializes in the history of evangelical church and in the shadow of January 6th and GOP obstruction of the committee to figure out what happened and GOP senators and executive administration complicity with an attempted coup and proliferate voter suppression and plans for voter subversion in 2022, like we have not seen since before the Voting Rights Act was passed in 1965. In these shadows, the vast majority of evangelicals are still supporting Donald Trump and the GOP. So we need to understand, you know, why. And we need to understand those who want to stop our flourishing. We need to understand in order to defeat their schemes. So in anticipation of the next election, which could flip the House and Senate back into GOP control, we are going to peek behind the religious and political wall that seems to have white evangelicals locked in the party of white nationalism and toxic masculinity. So Kristen's New York Times bestselling book, 
Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation, traces the history of Christian nationalism and evangelicalism and declares that evangelicals support Donald Trump, not despite his white supremacy, but because it affirms the worldview they've had all along. So let's jump in. All right. So, so Kristen, you know, one of the things that I'm actually, let's just start with your own heritage. I'm really interested in your name. What is the ethnic heritage of your name? Because I feel like we need to start in a rooted place in order to understand, you know, where we're all coming from. Mm-hmm. Yes, Cobus Dume, the most impossible name to, <laughs> <laughs> to carry around. Cobus is my birth name and it is Dutch. And I grew up in a Dutch immigrant community in Northwest Iowa, a small town called Sioux Center. My wow. dad is a theology professor in the Reformed tradition and an ordained minister. My mom was a Dutch immigrant herself. And so I come from an ethnic subculture. Dume is my married name, and it sounds very exotic, and it's French, but it's actually Dutch in disguise. It's Huguenot, so his family's also Dutch. And so we're both coming from the same ethnic subculture. We met in college at at Dort University, and so um, that's where I'm coming from. It is and it is not white evangelical. It's very, very white, but we, you know, I grew up defining myself against American evangelicalism. Really? Even as, oh, absolutely. We wow. were distinct. We were smarter than evangelicals for sure. And, <laughs> you know, just a little better. But at the same time, I was fully immersed in uh, evangelical popular culture, right? I only listened to Christian music. The top 40 was sinful. We only had one bookstore in my small town. It was a Christian bookstore. And so I was definitely exposed to that world, even though I didn't identify. And so even now, I kind of have one foot in, one foot out. And so I've never Mm -hmm. had to embark on this, you know, deconstruction as a lot of people are talking about, because I've always had a somewhat independent place to stand. So what was the, like, if it wasn't evangelicalism and you didn't identify there, where did you identify? Dutch Christian Reformed. And that's, they don't identify, I always thought they identified as evangelical, no? Yeah. So we're part of the National Association of Evangelicals, the Christian Reformed Churches, now the RCA, the Reformed Church in America, is you know mainline, and so we're kind of right right at the uh, intersection. Yes, yes. Um, and so even though we officially belong, and mm-hmm. I would say really in the we see a lot of movement in the last couple of decades, many um, in the CRC who formerly would have not identified as evangelicals now are de facto evangelicals, and so you'll see you know, people like John Piper and networks like the Gospel Coalition are very influential in the CRC today, oh, whereas yeah. thirty years wow. ago it was still much more distinctive. And again, that's that ethnic immigrant subculture that has been diluted. That is so helpful. Oh my gosh. Like that's, that's a piece that I actually didn't understand. I didn't realize that's been growing in its evangelicalism over the last several oh, yes. decades. So can I ask you to share, like, what is your own faith story? Like, how did you come to conscious faith? Did you have a point of that? Or was it more like, no, this is what my family believes? Oh, totally what my family believes. You know, I grew up in a very religious home in a very religious town. And I always knew I would go to not just a Christian college, but the Christian college in my hometown where my dad taught. And I did. And it was great. (laughs) At the time, it was really a good education. So I grew into my faith. I claimed my faith. But early on, and definitely in college, I my faith was very intellectual. You know, I studied theology. I studied philosophy. I had an entire course on Calvin's Institutes. 
And, and that to me is really how I grew in my faith. It was always an intellectual engagement. And also I was taught by professors who were in this Dutch tradition and not Americans. And so, you know, Canadian immigrants from the Netherlands who had lived under Nazi occupation, actually. And looking back, I think that shaped the kind of reform tradition that I was given. It was not a nationalist. It was wary of nationalism. It was actually a tradition that held together both a more conservative pietism and a social justice tradition that is is deeply rooted in my own ethnic heritage. So as I grew up, as I was in college, I was really drawn to the social justice components of the Reformed faith, which is essentially all of creation was created good. All of creation has fallen individuals and structures, and that our job is to work for the redemption of all things, to seek shalom, to seek human flourishing. And so that is a deeply reformed framework. And that is the framework that I embraced as a you know young Christian reformed girl. And so I really do see the work that I'm doing is very much aligned with my own tradition. Again, I'm not rejecting it. I'm living into it and learning a whole lot more as I go, because I will say that for all of its social justice orientation, it was very, very white tradition. So to one of the earlier questions, the Black prophetic tradition, completely absent from my upbringing, I discovered that as a historian, reading documents. And so I'm a big believer in books because this whole world was opened up to me. And I had thought that we had a corner on biblical truth and on real Christianity in my own little enclave. And we have a lot of things to offer, but oh my goodness, right? The body of Christ is so much bigger and we had a whole lot of blind spots. And so, you know, this really my whole life and through, through my work as a historian has been just learning how much bigger and broader the Christian tradition actually is. Wow, that's so deep. And I think also, I mean, honestly, myself as a public theologian and and done a lot of work in South Africa, I'm really interested in the connection between the Dutch Reformed faith that undergirded apartheid yes, and the history that you say, actually, the Dutch Reformed tradition, it actually has a history of justice. So how do those two things meet? It is both. It is very much both. And so you can take this kind of, you know, Kyperian sphere sovereignty and this idea of created order, creational order. And you can absolutely use that as was done in South Africa to insist that God has ordained these social hierarchies. Yes. Um, right? yes. And that is the case. And that is certainly, I do not, don't get me wrong. I do not want to present the Dutch reform tradition as, you know, unapologetically social justice, justice tradition, but there are no. resources within it. Right? right. And those are the ones that were presented to me. Those are the ones that I was drawn to. And being a part of this tradition means continually having to, you know, I don't try to excuse it. I don't try to just present the good sides, but exactly the question you ask, how can Christians who have this theological heritage also do these really anti-Christian things? And that is, I think, a, a job for all of us white Christians to continually interrogate. Yeah. And that's actually, that's a great segue into my next question. So in Jesus and John Wayne, you traced the history of white evangelicals in the 20th century and discovered that Donald Trump was the fulfillment of their wildest dreams for a president, not an aberration. And that, I have to say, like, that literally counters the narrative that most white evangelicals told after his election in 2016. So, and then that's why you say he still enjoys their support. So 
I'm wondering, like, what is it that you found that led you to that conclusion? Yeah, well, I first was drawn to this because I started researching evangelical masculinity and militarism more than 15 years ago. So before Trump was on our radar. And then for a variety of reasons, I set that project aside. And then in the fall of 2016, when I started, you know, hearing white evangelicals defending their support for Trump or excusing their support for Trump, you know, he was our ultimate fighting champion. He was going to fight to protect Christianity. It just, it reminded me so much of what I had read about all those years ago. And I thought this is nothing new. And what I had seen is that this ideal of militancy, of militant masculinity in particular, I saw early on, it it was a white masculine ideal. It did not apply to men of color. And it was also linked to abuse, to sexual abuse, to abuse of power. And I had seen this pattern. I'd kept track for more than a decade, just keeping track of what was going on in white evangelical spaces. And so when I saw, and this, it was actually in the days after the Access Hollywood tape released that, you know, listening to the defenses around Trump, that's when it clicked for me. We have seen this before. And that's just, you know, at one level. And then there's the also the policy level, frankly, if you look at the very close overlap between white evangelicals and Trump's agenda on issues of immigration, on issues of law enforcement, on civil rights and all of these things. All right. There is a very tight overlap there as well. Hmm. Wow. And so when you look at that overlap, I guess the question I have is, do you know like what in our tradition in the, and I say our, because I am an evangelical, I'm not white. And so, you know, Michael Emerson and Christian Smith, I'm sure, you know, in their book divided by faith said that the deepest divide in America in terms of worldview exists inside of the evangelical church, not between evangelicals and others, but inside it's between white evangelicals and black evangelicals. So when you look at white evangelical development, Do you have a sense of what in their history actually, you know, what that is it? Is it a problem with their faith itself or is it a problem with the fact that they actually don't they don't really have the faith? It's more of a social club. Oh, so I refuse to divide those. And I'm push I push back against particularly white evangelicals who want to say that, you know, the problem is that evangelicals, white evangelicals aren't being true to this beautiful, lovely faith tradition. I'm a historian, right? (laughs) I don't really work in ideals in the same way. I look at reality and what we can see is white evangelicalism, you know, from its inception was white. So let me give a couple of examples, you know, fundamentalism named after a series of publications, The Fundamentals, right, in the early 20th century. So, so very quickly, are you looking, focusing on the 20th century? So you're talking about white evangelism in the 20th century? Yes, yes, okay. I am. We could yeah. go back further. I'm a modern U.S. historian, but we could talk about this, right? But I, mm-hmm. I, what I will say is that the term evangelical means different things at different times in history. It means different yeah. things in different places, yeah. right? And so you can do linguistic studies. What did it mean in 18th century Britain? What does it mean today in Germany? Right. What does it mean? It means different things in different times and places. And so as a cultural historian, I pay a lot of attention to what does this concept mean to the people who are using it right now? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. And so go back to the early 20th century, you know, the fundamentals were sent out only to white conservative pastors, not to the black pastors who held these theological beliefs. Right. National Association of Evangelicals did not invite in black churches. 
right? And so you can just kind of go back and see, even though there was nothing explicitly saying we are a white organization, that's what they were and that's how they were constructed. And then you go this critical moment when you look at the emergence of evangelicals as a kind of political movement, as a partisan political movement in the 1960s and 1970s, it was against the backdrop of the civil rights movement. And that is part of their core identity. And we can talk about the Southernization of American religion. We can talk about migration patterns. We can talk about Billy Graham, right? And all of these things as a historian, it is just staring us right in the face. And then you can follow this history up to this, you know, through the you know myth of colorblindness. There's a new book out by Jesse Curtis on this one. And you can just see how the racial identity and white supremacy was baked into conservative evangelicalism. And it's often masked by religious language. But if you look for it as a historian, you're going to see it. I love how you say, I'm an historian. I deal in facts. <laughs> I love that. I just think it's, so, it's like so awesome. And so I really find your gender analysis incredibly important. Most of us look at white women and think that y'all are just as privileged as white men, right? And in fact, most white women think of themselves as they're just fine, right? In, our, in your white households and neighborhoods and family systems. But what I have found when I peek behind the veil with my white evangelical girlfriends is that they really do bear deep scars from living in such close proximity to hard white patriarchy. And that's really real. I mean, I bear the scars actually from my time in white evangelicalism and I didn't marry it. You know what I mean? I didn't have to be raised by it and I didn't raise it. So the rest of us experience what white patriarchy does through policies and laws. But hey, y'all are sleeping with white patriarchy. You live with it in your fathers, mm -hmm. your husbands, and you raise yeah. it. So I've realized that like the Susan Collinses of the world are just running place to survive white patriarchy. And it doesn't excuse them. It doesn't excuse her, but it explains this phenomenon that we just, we, we can't, we're looking at it from the outside and don't get. So as a white woman, can you talk to us a little bit about your experience of white patriarchy that most of us never get to see? All right. So yeah, let me start off by saying that white patriarchy would not exist without the active support of white women, right? So mm -hmm. that, that is a fact. That's and right. At the same time, yes, white women are suffering. And not all are going to say, you know, many women are perfectly happy with their, you know, positions within the system yeah. and are very invested in that and will and we'll fight to defend it. One thing that I've found is that they, it's an arrangement that they, it's like, a, it's like a deal, you it know? Is. So yeah, they're happy with the power they get because they get to still be white because they support white patriarchy. But for those who become race traders. I mean, from the very beginning, from 1660, from 1664 in Maryland, if a white woman married a black man and had children by that man, she then could be enslaved by that man's master. Mm -hmm. So they, they lost their whiteness if they defied white patriarchy. Yeah, you can lose your whiteness in that sense, but there are obligations here, right? There are requirements mm. kind of to be a proper woman in this universe. You know, beauty is one of them. Femininity is one. You know, submissiveness, sweetness, often not working outside of the home, right? That, that requires a certain economic privilege, but it also takes a toll on women who, there are some women who are perfectly happy to fit into that mold. There are others like myself, right? Not wired in that way at all. So 
for women who are in these communities raised according to these standards, whether by choice or just by, you know, the way you're made, if you mm-hmm. can't measure up to these expectations, it can be really brutal. You know, there's no place for you in certain white evangelical mega churches if you aren't into this you know, particular women's culture, if you aren't particularly beautiful or don't care if you're beautiful or, you know, if you are opinionated. There's, I think, much less of a tradition in white evangelical spaces than what I understand in Black Christian traditions of strong, powerful women, right, and having that authority. And so these are very limiting spaces. And I will say I have I have a much greater appreciation for this since I wrote Jesus and John Wayne, right? Writing that book, I'm just a historian trying to get the story right and telling mm-hmm. it as, as powerfully as I can mm-hmm. um, without a lot of thought to its reception. And what has surprised me is mm-hmm. how many white evangelicals, women and men, have just grasped onto that book as this is the story of my life. And there are so many wounds that they share with me. You know, women who grew up in purity culture, couples who tried to pattern their marriages after complementarianism and these, you know, these purity culture rules, and it just completely fell apart. Women who did not go on to college or did not go to pursue careers. And they are looking back and saying, I want the last 20 or 30 years of my life back. Wow. There's so much grief and so much pain. And then there's, you know, the kind of racial awakening too. So many white evangelicals grew up in just like I did, very white spaces, insulated spaces. You know, the question too about, you know, what do they think about progressives? I didn't think about progressives growing up. Not relevant, right? Oh, (laughs) so so again, these like insulated subcultures where your whole world is kind of defined for you. And so there's a, there is a lot of ignorance and there's a lot of awakening that's happening and a lot of just realization of how much we missed, how much we didn't know, but then you're still in the system, right? So you start posting about Black Lives Matter. You start posting about, Hey guys, maybe we need to think about this. The backlash can be brutal and it will come from your church. It could come from your place of employment it could likely come from your own family. And again, these patriarchal systems mean that women are always kind of, uh, you're supposed to defer to the authority of fathers, of husbands. And so it is. it can be really difficult for women who are trying to work themselves out of these spaces. It can literally lead to divorce and yes. being disowned by family members. I've had people literally write me, like DM me and tell me, this like this is the cost that people are paying for this. Men too, men being you know ostracized from their churches yeah. and their families, and that's not to say you know boohoo oh you know so sorry, but it is real. That so what that does is it gives us a, a picture of the vitriol of the violence actually that is behind the veil, yes. the violence that creates the policies that we experience on the other side. Yes. Right. So, and they're always the threat, right? It's the threat of, so, so I know somebody who lost her job at a Christian school. One of her sins was assigning your book. Wow. My book? Yes. Your book. Wait, say that again. (laughs) (laughs) Assigning a portion of your book in a Uh conservative Christian school. And And she was, what uh, was the backlash? Right. Well, that among other things, of course, there are going to be two sides to the story. Oh, uh, no. But she is no longer employed at that school. And there are so many stories that wow. I know firsthand. And now that I hear from, you know, because I wrote this book and it's so many people, these are the, the, this is the book where they are finding their stories 
are part of a bigger story because so many people thought, oh, this just happened to me. And then they realized, oh, this is part of something much bigger. Oh, it is. I'm going to pitch this now to my colleagues because I know they're burning with questions. So I'm going to go first to Jackie. What's your question for for Dr. Dumay? Okay. Wow, wow, wow. And (laughs) wow. (laughs) Right, right, right. So thanks, Lisa, for coming to me first because I'm like, wow, wow. Um, (laughs) I'm a pastor Christian in a Reformed church, uh, the Middle Collegiate Church, the oldest church in the nation, supposedly. I just want to say that out loud to say I'm always thinking about how, how that Dutch Reformed church that was South Africa, that w- in which apartheid is created, it's Stalinbosch, and then like, oh, we come over here, and then here I am, and I'm like, black in the place. So that's an interesting kind of thing, but it makes me think about reparations. Yeah. So today, as white evangelicals are awakening and thinking about what they missed in the last 20 to 30 years, are they thinking about making reparations with Black colleagues? Are they thinking about joining church back together? Are they thinking about building a bridge? What do you think? Great question. I think that there are some who are absolutely thinking that. The backlash is, as you know, well-organized and extremely powerful right now. And so what I am seeing is that, you know, for white evangelicals who are talking, even, I mean, forget reparations, take those off the table for now. Just talk about racial justice. What could be said four or five years ago is now going to be labeled CRT and banned. I mean, I am seeing this movement happen in real time, and it's daunting to see how effective this strategy is. So as much as I would like to say yes, and we're, we're building momentum in those directions, no. I mean, those who are even sticking their neck out a little bit are being slapped down right now. And I, it's, you know, I've studied this all historically. I've seen how, mm-hmm. you know, you have these campaigns against, well, you know, the anti-communism and then against secular humanism. And then, you know, like kind of see this like cycle. But to watch it in real time around, you know, in in reaction to initially the Obama presidency, that's Mm -hmm. when I first started hearing that white people who are talking about civil rights are racist against white people. Right, right, right. right. That has has been applied to me many times. The fact that I have the adjective white in my subtitle means that I'm racist against white people, right? So this is how this works. So there's a lot of backlash to the Obama presidency, certainly, and I trace a bit of that in the book. But since, you know, in the last three years, the backlash against this resurgence, Black Lives Matter, you see this bubbling up of this, you know, quote unquote, CRT, the anti-CRT movement. It is daunting to see how well that seems to be funded and how effective it is in moderate white evangelical spaces. And it is silencing the voices. Quick follow up. This is a naive question, but I just would love to hear you say, to what end? Is this, is this a desire to create a white nation? Like, what is the aim? That's, oh my gosh. that's it. That's it. Yes. Right? Is that? So, you know, when I have these conversations with more provocative interviewers or uh, you know, less careful folks, there'll be somebody who throws out, this is all about white supremacy, isn't it? This is all about white supremacy. Now, as a historian, we deal with complexity and nuance, and it's always complicated. We're always going to complicate your narratives. It's becoming harder to complicate that one. I set out to write a book about gender, about masculinity, and very soon I realized I was writing about race as well, right? And you can't separate the two. Historians of gender, I'll tell you that. And again, look at American history and, you know, you can see how gender and sexuality are always linked with our, under- our, our, our talking about race. And so to what end? So I'm a Calvinist. <laughs> Let me talk about power and sin. 
And it seems to be, you know, this is a very convenient way to feel really righteous about grasping power for people who act like you, who look like you, who have the same values as you. It does seem to come down to that. When I look at the leadership, right, in particular, but then I'm particularly interested in in the followers, in what is drawing people into these movements, you know, quote unquote, good Christian people. And there too, I have to see there, there has to be, apparently there's something quite satisfying in being told you did no wrong. You're cool. Everything's good, right? Nothing to apologize for. In fact, that's white guilt. Just, you know, no, push back, push that away. Instead of finding something beautifully redemptive in lament, in reparations, and in joining a beloved community, right? And that's what's missing. And so, so many of us, you know, who are trying to, to work against this, you know, it's just seems so foreign when we're accused of, you know, being burdened with white guilt and when we're, you know, like these dour negative people, like, no, this is a beautiful community that we are joining and there's justice and there's truth and there's love. Thank you so much, Kristen. How about you, Michael Ray? I think I might want to ask the same to what end kind of question. What is the end game for white folks who awaken to this reality, who discover that they have been nurtured in a white imaginary and that so much of what they've come to understand about the world and believe about God and the church and themselves is rooted in a commitment to the supremacy of white people, white men. And so when you have that awakening and you are doing the work of deconstructing that or doing the decolonizing work, to what end is all of that work? I'm someone who grew up in a large historic Black Baptist church, very rooted in the Black prophetic tradition with some other interesting exceptions, but spent my days in private Christian schools run by white denominations like the Assemblies of God, Calvary Chapel, Missouri Senate Lutherans. And I learned all of this stuff in those spaces. And when I was young, I saw them all as part of the same thing. And as I got older, I realized there was something very different happening. And so my journey of reckoning with the impact of white evangelicalism on my own life was facilitated by the fact that I had all these other resources in the Black prophetic church and in other like Black leaders and thought that informed how I thought about myself. So I had some, something to start with. And I'm always curious when I talk to my white colleagues, they're often like, if I'm trying to not be white, <laughs> what am I trying to be? Yeah. That's so good. That's so good. Oh, you know, it's worth pointing out that we can talk in systemic ways about racism and we can talk in systemic ways about white people. And and in, in some ways that don't absolve white people, but help us understand. And all of us have come of age in a segregated America. Our neighborhoods have been designed this way. Our schools reflect that neighborhood segregation. Our churches reflect that neighborhood segregation. And so it's kind of a default position to be in racially isolated spaces. I mm -hmm. absolutely grew up in that way. And it takes a lot of work because of our built environment, because of our history. It takes a lot of work to form relationships with people who don't look like you. And again, like for me, that first happened through books. 
And we first mm-hmm. happened yeah. through, I didn't know any people of color that I could really, you know, certainly not any who were not, who had not learned to survive in the dominant white spaces. Right. And so there are, one of the early questions was, you know, about well, what this, what about this fascination with Black music and with Black preachers? And like, that's all cool as long as you play according to our rules. And as long as you reinforce our quote unquote worldview, that is great. And you will be welcome as a brother in Christ. And this, what's interesting is this is also mostly Black men. It's harder for Black women to, to be welcomed Absolutely. into these spaces. And there's a variety of reasons for that. Yep. Right. But then that's great. As soon as you try to change something, as soon as you try to say, but wait a minute, as soon as you try to actually bring the substance of that Black prophetic tradition into those spaces in a genuine way, that's when you're going to get some conflict. And that's when you're probably going to get a lot less you know, hospitality. And eventually you're going to get the burnout and you're going to say, okay, I can do better work somewhere else. And that is a story that has repeated, been repeated over and over again. Now, I do know some white, um, you know, reconstructing Christians who have found a you know, beautiful spiritual home in historically black churches. I always hesitate to say that because like the last thing you all want is a whole bunch of white evangelicals to go into your church. I don't know. That could, but, but you know, that steps. has happened. There needs to be a 12-step program. That's exactly right. There needs some shepherding here. But there are still many white evangelicals who are trying to do this deconstruction and don't even think that, hey, guess what? The whole history of you, like the church does not depend on you guys getting this right. And that's what, so for so long, white evangelicals have thought Mm. they are the church, the true church. That's right. And so there's this moment Mm. of crisis. And I keep telling him like, oh, don't worry. The church is thriving outside of your spaces. You can go find it there, right? It's not all on you. And maybe you're not the one positioned to fix it. Maybe this is just a time to go listen and learn. And maybe that is your, you know, your calling from here on out. Maybe it, you don't have to be the one to fix it. <laughs> wow. Go mm-hmm. on, girl. <laughs> That's fabulous. Thank you so much, Michael. Ray. What a great question. And then how about you, Otis? First of all, mind blown. I'm really enjoying this conversation and to hear how you've been framing and examining all of these particular issues. And for me, Michael Ray jokes and says that I'm the Ethiopian of the bunch um, because I come out (laughs) of a tradition where I didn't know anything about evangelicalism. I was completely in a self-contained, very Black religious tradition that didn't know anything about that nor knew any of these kind of doctrinal narratives whatsoever. So I thought evangelical was a guy named Evan who was putting some hair gel in and was like, evangelical. <laughs> I didn't know, I didn't know what it was until oh much later God. in life. And it became very fascinating. My, my introduction to evangelicalism was in college to a degree, meeting some other people who was like, well, what, what do you all believe? But really when in graduate school, I had the book, the autobiography of Malcolm X, which I was using for class. And I was challenged by someone who said, I must be, I was a youth pastor also, that you are leading your children down the wrong path. And I was like, who the heck are you? What are you? Who are you? I, was like, I said, this is a great piece of history. I'm, we're studying black history. So my question is, we say white evangelicalism, is whiteness the religion and evangelical or Christianity, the trinket. Is that the faith and divorcing someone from 
their racial imagination to be able to take hold of the sacred imagination. Is that the project? I think so. I think so. You know, here again, you know, when I talk with other scholars, I push back against too stark a separation because this is a theological question. And that's a, you know, so I agree with that theological answer. Yet the truth is that the religion that is being preached from pulpits, the religion that's being written into these devotional studies, the religion that's happening in these small group spaces, right? It is true religion. By true, I don't mean the right one. (laughs) I mean, it is authentic religious faith and it is inseparable from these white value systems, right? You know, this is where I get a ton of pushback from like conservative white evangelicals for saying things like this. But you know, we need to interrogate the ways in which things that have been packaged and sold as just plain Christian have been marketed as quote unquote Christian worldview mm-hmm. are so distinctively shaped by white understandings of the scriptures, white understandings of you know what worldview even means. And again, as a historian, we can spell this out. We can show how it happened and we can bring it into conversation with different traditions and show how you start here, you're going to end up here. If you start here, you end up somewhere else, right? And we can show this happening. That goes against the belief system of the people who are in it, right? Mm. By saying, uh-uh. So you attack this aspect, this cultural layers that you go on top, you attack that to them, they are not able to even separate the cultural or racial layers. That is simply Christianity. And so it seems like those of us who are coming to say, let's take off a few of these layers and try to get to biblical truth, try to get to, you know, a better understanding. And we need the whole body of Christ around us to do that. To them, it feels like we are attacking core Christianity. And so there's a lot of miscommunication right now happening around these, you know, these deconstruction conversations because the starting points are just so different. And it is impossible for some of these guys to see. I'm not sure if it really is impossible or if they're pretending it's impossible, but I'm giving the benefit of the doubt and that it is actually impossible for them to see that what they are saying is quote unquote biblical. They can't understand that their own culture has shaped their understanding of what the Bible says. You just opened my mind because now I understand some of the conversations that I've had, the kind of pushback and sometimes deep anger because it's an identity piece. Yes. And, you know, I'm seeing it differently. And so, so my, I just want to follow up. So in Europe, does Europe function in the same way that America functions in terms of evangelical? What's the difference in a place mm-hmm. where you have a variety of ethnicities? Yeah. In America, they're called white. But if you go to Europe, it's like, no, I'm Scottish, I'm Irish. So, so does it function differently? Yeah, it functions differently for now. So in Europe, evangelical means something very different, right? Okay. Uh, in, at least historically, it essentially means Protestant. So evangelical has always meant something different there. But what we see happening is uh, across Europe is the export of American evangelicalism into these spaces. And so I have a lot of letters from readers in the UK, also Canada, also Australia, also, you know, places like China, Kenya, talking, Mm. oh, and a lot from Brazil, right? Talking about how this particular version of evangelicalism, this white American conservative evangelicalism has been actively exported for decades now. And so in China, they're big into John Piper, Right. Big. And they're reading stuff from the gospel. Wait, wait a minute. Can you repeat, and in repeat Brazil, that? 
and in, in Brazil. Brazil. Really? Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So Big I mean, time. oh my gosh, huge, huge, and it's huge. why Bolsonaro won in Brazil. It is. So Jesus and John Lane is going to be translated into Portuguese at the request of Brazilian evangelicals who are working inside to try to push back against the authoritarian strand, which is the dominant strand within Brazilian evangelicalism Mm -hmm. right now. I'm going to turn it back over to Lisa, but I have to ask this. Are you putting together some form of documentary, something visual that will communicate the story because we need to spread this information? I mean, I think it will bless so many people just to hear, hear this story. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I'm participating in a number of other documentaries, just as Talking Head, but we are working on possibilities for Jesus and John Wayne documentary down the road. We'll see. Awesome. Well, I want to say, first of all, thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Thank Thank you you so much. Yes, indeed. Wow. Seriously. Okay. Were minds not blown? (laughs) Minds were blown. And so I love reconnaissance. Reconnaissance is fun. We get to go over the wall and like peek in and see, okay, what is coming at us? This is what's coming at us, friends. There's a necessity for us to actually tell the story from the ground up and also to call white evangelicals to subvert the larger narratives by looking into their own family stories. You almost went there when you went with the ethnic, like beginning to understand, to deconstruct whiteness Mm -hmm. and reclaim their ethnic identity heritage actually does something to pry the talons off of a white imagination. Mm -hmm. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. I think it it has the potential to do that, especially if it's, you know, in the right context, not in the way to say, to absolve oneself. See, I'm not white. I'm Dutch. Right. Right. (laughs) To say, yeah, to expose what part of this is whiteness and what part of our own heritage we can hold on to and seek to redeem and, and enjoy even parts that bring us into connection with others, not that build walls. That's fabulous. Well, thank you again for coming today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. This was wonderful. We're very grateful. All right. Thank you so much, you guys. I really, really appreciate this. Thank you so much. Big fan. So thank you. Take care. We are too now. (laughs) Yes. Okay, friends. So let's talk. I like it. So for folks who are listening on the podcast, I'm like, I'm watching my colleagues. They're literally like shaking their heads and they're sitting back in their chairs and they're like, what? Okay. So Otis, I see you shaking your head. What's going through your head? No, come on. He just dug the well. I mean, she dug the doggone well and broke it down. Down. Oh my gosh. And didn't hold anything back. And coming from the historical perspective, I absolutely love, but, you know, confirm some things I knew, but I'm, all this language is so, a lot of it foreign to me because the whole complementarian thing, I just heard that like recently someone was talking about how they lived there. I'm like, oh, oh, what, what I'm trying to, oh yeah. I mean, so this is very new to me on one level Mm -hmm. because of our group and she, uh, while we were on here, I'm like, okay, let me order. How many books do I need to order? <laughs> I downloaded the audio books. While we were I didn't want to say like what church I'm at. I said, did you put my church in your book? I was like, <laughs> oh wow, that's funny. So wow. I, I did not want to say anything. Just absolutely brilliant, great conversation. Thank you, Lisa, for bringing her yes. on. This yeah. was a great education for me. And I know for our listeners, 
for those of you who have the Ethiopian-esque tradition like myself, <laughs> this, is, this thing's going to blow your mind. It just blew my mind. Wow. How about you, Michael Ray? Because you're so close to it. Yeah. So just reading a review of the book led me to go back and look at the A Thief in the Night series right, right. of movies that were about the rapture and the final days and, you know, an attempt, at least the way I understood it then and even now, to get people to become Christian by, you know, scaring living daylights out of them. <laughs> and living daylights means something else. Just going back to those movies just was such a traumatic experience for me this morning. And so what she did in this conversation was help me understand how that whole world was constructed. And that, and that, that was, it is constructed. That's right. That's right. That it is constructed. Right. And even there. the work that those movies were doing to help continue that construction. Mm-hmm. And so it, it made me think about not just movies, but also books that I read at that time in my life. Even the Bibles that I read at that time, that, you know, the, with the special study guides that were yes. you know, designed to take you down a particular road for how you understood the scriptures. All the Christian music I was listening to, how I felt about secular music. Yeah, it took me back. How about you, Jackie? I just loved this conversation. I really did. And as I just think about the way Otis and Michael Way were just reflecting, maybe I'm not quite as Ethiopian as Otis, but I did dodge the white evangelical bullet. Like that did not happen in my life. So I was kind of twinning with a reformed tradition. You know, I'm Mm -hmm. a Presbyterian. Mm -hmm. serving in a Reformed church. And I was fascinated at what she articulated that I knew as a Black Presbyterian. You know, as a Black Presbyterian, the Reformed church has a justice tradition, right? Mm -hmm. We move beyond we're worms. No, thank you. (laughs) Creation is good, Lisa, your book, and Mm -hmm. we can redeem it and we can, like, all of that. So I was really Mm -hmm. resonating with, with her personal faith story and then just really deeply impressed with her with that intersectional analysis of gender and race and what we can learn from it and her answers about to what end and how you, she can no longer say it's not about white supremacy. I have to say that was extraordinarily refreshing. Oh the, my God. And it made me really want to dig into her book. I think white people who are awakening, I don't love the woke word, but mm-hmm. the awakening white imagination mm-hmm. needs more talk with people like Kristen. That's what I mm-hmm. think. That's right. Yeah. And I think one of the things, I mean, I have to say, I was actually really moved in the middle of her conversation because I lived all of that. Like, mm-hmm. All of it. Yeah. Until recently, like until like wow. maybe wow. 15 years ago. Well, yeah, 15 years ago, 16 years ago, 2005 is when I had my exit. And by exit, I mean exit from the community, being soaked in it. Mm-hmm. Um, from that point forward, it was more like, you know, Sundays and church and And even that, I'm not there anymore. I'm just not. And I, oh my gosh. So the white patriarchy, you know, the complementarianism, I strongly believe that I gravitated toward that community because of my own brokenness and my own black family and Mm -hmm. the authoritarian nature of my dad. So I, you know, I came into that community and thought, well, this feels comfortable. This feels high control. Yeah, I was set up to take it. Exactly. But also because I got to be, the one black person in the room. So I was the unique one, but I also paid the cost. So when she said, and I never heard anybody say this before, it's harder for black women to actually be entered into that and, and accepted and brought into that. It is. Yeah. And I think it's one of the reasons why I'm single today. 
because mm. black men will be fully brought in and will even marry white women. They even let black men marry white women if they toe the line, if mm. they toe the line. And even they get some backlash, but mostly from black women. Did you guys think about, state. did you think about Dante Stewart when she was talking? Oh my goodness. I yes. totally did, wow. right? Yeah. Yes. 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 These two yeah. episodes will be so interesting. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, together, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So anyway, I was blown away by by her conversation. I'm loving the fact that you were blessed by it. And I hope that this really did contribute to our building our capacity to fight off the forces that want to limit and stop our flourishing in November 2022 and 2024. So God bless you. Thank, Thank you, you so much for being a part of this conversation. I want to dedicate this episode to John Perkins. I think he's like 98 years old. In his body, he carries the hinge point in white evangelicalism between the era when they had no prophet to tell them the truth and the era when they had no excuse. And John Perkins was among the first to write it down. And he wrote it down in his first book, Let Justice Roll Down. And in his second book, With Justice for All. And then he built the Christian Community Development Association, which was one of the first major forces in white evangelicalism and the black churches that grew out of white evangelicalism to move evangelicals to open up their worldview, even a peak to see that justice what they called then racial reconciliation. Race is an issue here, but he's still very spry, very sharp and still working in the world. But I know that what he would want today is he would want for us to move the conversation forward to not only be about have a black friend, not only be about even community development, but to be about repairing what race broke in the world. So John Perkins, thank you for the scars of your life that we will never see for being the first. I'm Otis Moss III. I'm Lisa Sharon Harper. I'm Michael Ray Matthews. I'm Jackie Lewis, inviting you to learn more at the4.black.